Amen. Good morning. Tom, is this your collection of stuff here? <laughs> well, you're supposed to use the other stand. What is this? Um, that's a clamping device that they use usually on guitars, but like if it was a little bigger, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. Well, I hope you had a uh, wonderful Thanksgiving. We are truly a blessed people. May we remember that. If you've uh, been with us recently here, the uh, last couple months, you've uh, figured out we're going through the, the Gospel of Mark. And we're heading now by virtue of we, we cleared that hurdle of Thanksgiving. We're heading toward the next big day, Christmas. And <clears throat> that's where we celebrate the amazing, miraculous incarnation of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the celebration that we're looking to. And I hope and pray this holiday season that you're keeping first and foremost the thought of what it is that you were given by this man, Jesus Christ, and what it means to you. And as we look in the scriptures here today, we're going to take a look at some, uh, some gifts that were given to a couple people that are uh, called out here, sectioned out here in scripture. And there's a lesson with each one of them, and I want us to grab that lesson. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, so if you want to turn your Bibles there, we're going to cover pretty much the whole chapter today. But um, I want to set this stage because it's important that we understand where, uh, where Jesus has been, where he's going, what's happened previously to, to this juncture. Remember Jesus, uh, obviously born Christmas Day, that first Christmas, but we didn't really hear much about his life until uh, he was uh, 13 years old <clears throat> when all of a sudden we hear about him uh, remaining at the temple uh, at, and worshiping and his folks are looking for him. And then we don't hear anything else until we get to his ministry. He's now about, you know, roughly 30 years old, and he begins his public ministry, uh, which lasts for about three, three and a half years. And we've looked at the beginning of that ministry here in the previous chapters of Mark. We've looked at the splash he made in opening up this ministry. He came out, you know, with a, uh, I guess, a, both guns blazing, to use a, a saying that we're aware of. He didn't just ease into things. He exploded into things. We've seen him at this point uh, cast out demons. We've seen him at this point 
heal sickness, heal disease. We've seen him still the wind that caused the waves on the, on the sea. He's ha he has command over nature. He has command over the supernatural. We've seen him run full into the religious structure of the day, challenging it. He's made enemies. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the, the, the Herodians, the, the religious crowd, the religious system hates him because he's not conforming. He's not lifting them up. He's doing things they can't do. And they're already plotting to kill him. He's run headlong into their religious system, their religious uh, aura, their, their religious customs. And he's said it's not that. It's not that at all. Here's the Son of God, God himself, standing right in front of them, and they don't recognize him. But we're starting to see that there are those who have recognized him, who do recognize him. We start to see, and we're going to look at a couple instances today, of people who declare they believe in his claim of deity, they believe in his claim of, of love, of being sovereign, and we see it by what they do. But the start of chapter 5, we're just going to, I'm not going to read that because <clears throat> I don't have time, but uh, just kind of, it, it fits into this, so I want to summarize it. Remember, we just saw that they, uh, he was in Capernaum. And he gets into the boat. Yeah, they take a couple of boats, actually, and they head across the sea. And that's where the wind kicks up. That's where the waves kick up. That's where he's sleeping in the boat, and they're fearful of their lives, and all of a sudden he stands up and he rebukes the wind, and it stops. He's heading across the Sea of Galilee, and he lands. This was a night journey. It takes about six hours by boat. And he gets there, and he runs into, in, in chapter 5, he steps off the boat uh, in Gerasenes. That's probably not exactly how you pronounce it, but it's good enough for me. Uh, and there he encounters uh, the demoniac, the man that has a legion of demons. Here's this guy who is a maniac, literally. That's what they, they referred to him as, a maniac. This man had ch broken chains about him because uh, they couldn't confine him. He's dangerous. He's foul. He's, he's loud. He is, he's absolutely uncontrollable. They've tried to control him and they can't. And he... He ends up where people who uh, struggle with, with um, demonic influence, he ends up isolated. 
He lives now out in the tombs where nobody goes. He lives among the dead, and that's where Jesus goes. And you're going to see that he goes there for him. There's no other reason for him to go there. But that's where he goes. That's where he lands. It's no, it's no happenstance. It's no chance that, oh, well, the wind must have just blown him off course, and that's where they ended up. No. There's no chance with God. He gets off the boat and encounters this man, and he heals him. Up to this point, Jesus has dealt with the demonic, but this man had a legion or many, multiple demons. Their name was Legion because of so many. And that's where you, you hear the story of uh, he cast them into the herd of swine that, were in the, in, that was in the vicinity, and they rushed headlong into the sea. This man was now healed. This man who was an outcast socially, this man who was an outcast, nobody dealt with this guy anymore. And all of a sudden, this man is healed. And it's interesting what Jesus says to him because, you know, he wants to come with Jesus. He's got the 12 apostles now. He's got disciples that are following him. This man wants to become one of those, and he wants to follow him. But Jesus says, no, you go back, and you tell everybody what's been done for you. This is the first commissioning of any evangelist. Jesus says, go and tell all, that you, all those who ask what God has done for you. Then he gets in the boat, Jesus, and he heads back. He went there, six-hour boat journey there, six hours back, went, went there for this one man. That shows compassion. That shows total love. So he gets back to Capernaum, and that's where we're going to pick up with another couple people. In verse 21 is where we'll start today, chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, that would be now he's heading back to Capernaum, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and, buy your hand, and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Okay, I want <clears throat> to fill you in on this guy. I don't want you to miss the importance of this. This is Jairus. He's a synagogue official. He's part of that religious crowd that hates Jesus, that's now out to kill him. This is Jairus. He's the overseer of the synagogue. He's the behind-the-scenes guy. He's the guy that everybody goes to because he's the guy who prepares the, the synagogue for worship. He, he takes care of the uh, of the grounds. He takes care of everything that pertains to 
the synagogue, him and a couple others. He would be our equivalent of, of Mike, uh, who does everything around here that nobody has an idea what all he does. But he's the behind-the-scenes guy. He keeps the place running, the caretaker, the overseer. This is Jairus. He's known by everybody. And this guy is also pretty wealthy. He's a leader, not only of the synagogue, but probably the community. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm battling a cold here. So this is Jairus. And I want you to realize what it's, what it's costing him to do this. This is a demonstration of the man's faith. And why? Well, he's seen Jesus at work. <coughs> Excuse me. He's witnessed, probably, Jesus' power. <coughs> Excuse me. In, Luke, or in Mark chapter 1, we've already seen him uh, deal with the demon in the synagogue. He rebuked him, and the demon went out. So he's already seen it, but he's also heard it all because that's, this is the, you know, this is the hubbub. Not just of the, uh, the community, this is the, this, this is the stir of the synagogue because all these religious leaders are up in arms about this Jesus. And, and Jesus had done many miracles at this point in Capernaum. So it's not that, that Jairus didn't know of this man. He knew of him, and we see he believed in him. Because in stepping out, coming through this crowd, it says the crowd was pressing in on him. That means he was like a sardine in there. He had to, you know, Jesus was, was being mobbed, literally, by this crowd. And this man, in front of all these people, known to most of them probably, he comes and he falls down in front of Jesus. Do you realize what he's risking? Do you realize what he's just done? He has thrown everything away. His reputation, his job, his status, everything's going to be gone. His position in the community, because certainly the religious crowd is going to cut him loose. This costs this man virtually everything. And why? Because, why is he willing to risk it? Because he has a need. His daughter is dying, and he knows it. But he also knows that if this man, Jesus, lays his hands on her, she will live. And that's oftentimes what brings out our true belief. Sometimes we say we believe, but we really don't know we believe until we have that, that crisis. I know that's the way it was in my life. I had to reach a crisis point where my way wasn't working and basically it was going to cost me everything that was involved in my life at that point. 
And you know what? It was worth it. Totally worth it. Uh, but God does that. He's willing to do that. And that's what's happened to this man, Jairus. He's at the point where he's valuing things. He's weighing things out. And he says, I know and I believe my only hope is in him and he comes and he bows down. Nobody, the Jews didn't bow down to anybody. They didn't have a king. They weren't going to bow to anybody. But he bows down in front and implores him. And Jesus, the compassionate one, goes with him. Now there's this whole crowd of people, but he goes with him. Goes on to say we meet another person here. We go from Jairus, the the well-known, the respected, to a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power that the power proceeded from him and had gone forth turned around in the crowd and said who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and, and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. A woman who had been bleeding, hemorrhaging, for 12 years. Now I want you to understand what that means. I mean, in her world. This was a Jewish woman. This was a woman who was, in to was a total outcast. Why? Because Old Testament law, you can read about it in Leviticus 12 verses 3 through 8 or Leviticus 15 verses 9 through 27. When a woman was bleeding, menstruating, they were declared unclean and not able to touch anyone for seven days. This was a symbolic picture of what sin does to a person. It makes them unclean. I apologize for that, ladies. Uh, you got the pain in childbirth and that. Uh, you can talk to Eve about it someday. Uh, we got circumcision. That's probably a fair deal. But, uh, you know. but this was a symbolic gesture. This was a symbolic thing that, as many of the things were in the Old Testament, it was a physical picture of spiritual truth. It was singling them out. And so this woman was declared unclean. She had no social life. No social life. 
if she touched her husband, he was unclean. And he had to be ceremonially cleansed. This wasn't a disease. This was this, this religious picture being painted. If she touched her children, they were unclean. If she touched you, you would be ceremonially unclean and would have to go through the ritual of cleansing. So this woman went nowhere, had no life. She'd been to doctor after doctor to no avail. The first century doctors were not very good, okay? They didn't know how to deal with things like this. It's interesting, this account, the same account is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew and Mark tell about the physicians, how they were of no help and how they, it had cost her everything. Luke says nothing about that because Luke was a doctor. Luke just says she was incurable. <clears throat> so here's this woman whose life is ruined. She's in that condition for 12 long years. Can you imagine what she risked? Everybody knew who she was. And here she is, probably with a veil over her face, disguising herself somehow. She works her way through that crowd. They're packed in there. That's what that word is talking about. This crowd is a throng. It is tight. And she worms her way through that crowd. If you've ever seen Gracie at a street concert, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And get right to the front. Uh, that's what she did. She got right to Jesus and her faith. She said, if I just touch him, what faith? What desperation? But she does it. Now think of what else she's risking. If seen, if discovered, she's touching the teacher. She's touching God, self-proclaimed Son of God, making him unclean. Imagine that kind of faith. But she does it. It says she touched the, the, the edge or the fringe, one account says, the fringe of his robe. And again, in, in Numbers, you find that uh, the Jews, uh, again, were identified by their cloaks or their tunics or their robes in that at the bottom they would have fringe, the, you know, kind of tassels, uh, which would identify them as, as a Jew. The Pharisees in Matthew 5, you find that Jesus mocked them because they enlarged their tassels. They made them, they made them big braids so that everybody would know they were, they were the, the, the cool, okay, the special guys. Uh, and Jesus was mocking them for that. But that was that fringe that they had. And I'm sure Jesus had that small fringe like everybody else. And she went up and she just touched it. And immediately she was healed. 
And immediately she felt it. Immediately she knew it. And it says immediately he knew it. She was healed. So why didn't he just keep going? Why did he stop? Why did he call attention to this whole deal? Because though she was healed of her physical affliction, she wasn't healed yet of her social affliction. What Jesus does next shows tremendous compassion. Here's this woman who has touched him, and she is now trembling, not with fear of being afraid, but in awe that everything she had believed has now been proven true because she knows she's healed, which means she knows he is who he says he is, and she bows down before him and makes a public confession, a public statement about her condition of 12 years and how she was now healed, and Jesus says to the crowd, Amazing words. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus stops and says this for her sake. She's been living as unclean for 12 years and everybody knew her as unclean and now he's declaring to everybody, this woman is clean. Give her her life back. That's the compassion of Jesus. Not just physically healing her. Relationally, socially, esteem-wise, healing her. And he calls her daughter. Do you know what that must have felt like to her? She now knows this man is the Son of God. And he called her daughter. She'd been estranged from the religious beliefs of the, of the people, and now she's elevated to daughter? What a day. Goes on to say this in verse 35. While he was still speaking... They came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came, to the, came in the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a, com a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And he entered in and he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and he entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum which translated means, little girl, I say, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Here's now Jesus 
going with this synagogue official, even though they, they have come and said, don't bother, she's dead. Jesus looks right at the synagogue official and he says, don't be afraid. I am who I said I am. And he believed. He was, all of his hope was in this man's word. And he followed Jesus to his own home where there's this Jewish tradition going on of weeping and wailing, uh, grieving, as it were, the death of this little girl. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's only asleep. And they mock him. They laugh at him, which kind of gives you an idea their weeping and wailing was more of a tradition than a heartfelt thing. But all of a sudden they're mock, and it says that he put them out. That's the same thing it says about the the money changers in the temple that he drove out because they were making a mockery of the temple. But he put them out. And there's only mom and dad there. Along with his companions, Peter, James, and John, this first time you see that trio kind of called out of the twelve. And, and this, they, he wanted them to witness his authority, and his power, which they hadn't seen this kind of power yet, but he goes in with the mom and dad and that trio, and he tells the little girl to get up. And she gets up. He raises the dead now. What can't this man do? nothing. This man is the Son of God. He is God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, and he can do what he wants. And what he wants to do is heal people. He wants to raise people from the dead. It's interesting. He told the, the demoniac to go and tell everybody when the woman's healed, he tells everybody. But here, he says, tell no one. Why? Because no one needed to be told. She's going to walk out of that house having been dead, now alive. She'll be her own testimony. And that's my challenge to all of us. You see, God is concerned, God is interested, God is involved in every aspect of our lives. He tells them, hey, don't forget, she's probably hungry. Feed her. Go on with your normal life, but you will be a testimony of who I am by walking out of this house Everyone is going to know I am who I say I am with the power that I say that I have. And they too are going to have to decide what they believe. These people believed. The demoniac had no real control of himself but was healed and believed. The woman believed and man, she made a beeline, risking everything. Jairus, 
He believed. He risked everything. He threw away everything because he believed. And God came through always. And this little girl's life is now a testimony of his power over death. And keep in mind, all these are symbolic. All these are physical pictures of spiritual truths. Because God now sends you and I, who were dead, but are now alive spiritually. He's raised us from the dead. Remember in Romans it says we've been raised with him. We're now alive. And our very lives should be a testimony of His power. That's where we bring this home. That's where we make this personal. This isn't just a story for us to go, wow, that's cool. This is a story about us. We were sick, and He healed us. We were dead, and He raised us. We were bombarded with lies from the evil one, and we now have the ability to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. This story is about us. Do people know when they're encountering you that they're encountering a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying that because this is our life. This is our struggle. Because we still have an enemy who doesn't want anybody to know who we are. But God says, arise and walk. Get out there and be seen. Be my ambassadors. So in this Christmas season, as we celebrate, and I want you to be celebrating the birth of Jesus. And you know, this is something that we as Christians have kind of made up, honestly, because we're not told to celebrate this, but you know what? It's worthy of celebrating. The gift of God was given to us, eternal life through His Son, Jesus. And we celebrate His humble beginnings, the fact that He stepped out of eternity into time, humbling Himself to become a man. It's worth celebrating. So celebrate that. But remember what it is you're celebrating. You're celebrating the healer, the gentle healer who's come to town. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're healed. You're raised from the dead. You share the very life of Jesus Christ now dwelling within you. And you can do all things through Christ strengthening you. Focus on that this holiday season and you will really be blessed. Let's pray. Father, you are awesome. You are good. You're, you're aware of our physical needs. You're aware of our spiritual needs. You're aware of our relational needs. You're aware of everything. And you're there to meet the need of everything. And, and you're there to give us understanding in what you're doing. You're there to send comfort and mercy in times of, of hardship, of trial, of, of grieving, of, 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 of everything that's going on in our life. You know us personally and you're here with us to touch us, to heal us, to encourage us, to lift us up to empower us to do what you want done through us. So, Father, we just praise you. We give you thanks for that, and we praise you for that. I pray, Father, that you find us faithful in living out the truth of being heirs to everything that you have, 
by virtue of being your sons and daughters, a prince or a princess, here on this earth in the kingdom of darkness, but with everything that pertains to life and godliness. And we'll trust you for the outcome of that. In the name of the one and only one who could give it, Jesus. Amen. You guys have a great week. And if there's anybody who would like to pray, I want to just remind you, we always have elders up here. If, if you've got something going on in your life you just want prayer for, please come up and uh, visit with one of the elders.